Do you think it is impossible to be a Christian and support President Trump? Well, I'm not going to tell other Christians how to be Christians. But I will say, I cannot find any compatibility between the way this president conducts himself and anything that I find in scripture. Now, I guess that's my interpretation, but I think that's a lot of people's interpretation. Donald Trump's worst nightmare is a candidate that will bring people in from the middle. The people that are tired of the noise and the nonsense, and they are tired of the tweets and the mean stuff. We must and we will defeat the most dangerous president in the modern history of America. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I'm nominally on vacation this week. I'm heading to Mardi Gras in New Orleans with my children, heaven help me, tomorrow. But I popped into the studio to talk with Bill Crystal because he's Bill Crystal. And well, how did we come to this pretty pass where life is a jambalaya po'boy of strange bedfellows with a side of beignets stuffed with uncanniness? I had to find out. And I know it's February, but I'm already dreading the spring and especially the summer with flashbacks to 2016 summer when all the world was new until it collapsed. It's going to be a jacked primary. It already is. And if redacted or redacted gets the nomination, it's going to be a summer of supporting a candidate that gives me brutal hives only because unlike the other guy, he doesn't give me coronavirus. Of course, I'll take the hives, but they're still hives. So those emergencies and excitement about talking to Bill Crystal got me into the studio today. Bill is here to discuss why Republicans stick with Trump and why he did not. I have questions for him that I've been harboring for two years, ever since we met at Politicon, which is this madcap conference in L.A., I was too distracted that day by the freak show of Politicon, which included Carter Page and Dennis Rodman. I'm not kidding. I could not focus on anything, including asking the questions I had for Bill. So I'm going to ask them on this show. As listeners know, I like a guest who changes her or his mind. And Crystal, in Breaking with Trump, has blown open his worldview. And not just that. He's willing to think deeply about the experience and its consequences. I'll be back with Bill in just a minute. But first, the tweets. Is corrupt Bloomberg News going to say what a pathetic debater Mike is, that he doesn't respect our great farmers, or that he has violated campaign finance laws at the highest and most sinister levels with payoffs all over the place? What Mini Mike? is doing is nothing less than a large-scale illegal campaign contribution. He is spreading money all over the place only to have recipients of his cash payments, many former opponents happily joining or supporting his campaign. Isn't that called a payoff? I hope the Federal Judges Association will discuss the tremendous FISA court abuse that has taken place with respect to the Mueller investigation scam, including the forging of documents and knowingly using the fake and totally discredited dossier before the court. Thank you. 
Rob Bogoyevich did not sell the Senate seat. He served eight years in prison with many remaining. He paid a big price. Another Comey and gang deal. Thank you to Lisa Marie Booth, who really gets what's going on. Fox News. Mini Mike. No. I would rather run against you. Joining me on the line from our D.C. studio is Bill Crystal. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, Bill. Great to be with you. I don't really approve of the name, I've got to say, but that's oh, okay. Oh, I know. You know, Jacob Weisberg started this before Trump even got the nomination and it is was going right? to be wow. a short novelty show. Yeah, that's, that, that says it all, doesn't it? That's our trajectory over the last four or five years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And we've heard that he thinks it, you know, because it has his name in it, that how can it not be? It's Trump branded. Our show. Yeah, well, there's some truth to that. I'm going to have to start saying that a lot. You know, I don't know why Slate has some Trump-branded podcast. I mean, geez, you'd think <laughs> exactly. they might be a little more skeptical, but if they want to be part of the MAGA team, that's okay, you know? <laughs> All right. I want to start with, because I know you don't mind rough and tumble and criticism, and you've endured criticism from right and left your whole career. David Marcus and the Federalist, not an especially impressive columnist, but I don't know if you saw this. He bitterly regrets now having defended you when you broke with Trump, but now feels like you're fully lost to the path of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I guess. But he did bring up one interesting thing, which was he says something like the fights long since thought unwinnable. And he means the conservative fights on taxes, minority unemployment. I don't really know what that is. Biologically based sex. Foreign policy, the judiciary and Roe versus Wade and prayer in schools are now in play because of Trump. Those great conservative issues. He said, did Bill Kristol ever want these things? I have no idea. And I realize I don't know either. Did you care about biologically based sex or Roe versus Wade or prayer in school by the time you, you know, during Obama's second term? I think I prefer biologically based sex to other kinds of <laughs> other bases of sex, but I guess we don't want to go there, right? I mean, it's really, I mean, that list itself shows, I think, how thin any real pretense of a Trump agenda is. But yes, I cared about various conservative issues. I, I also care about the overall health of our liberal democracy. And I care about that more, honestly, than any of the, I'd say almost any, or really any of these particular issues. And I do think that's one, th you know, that's one thing that some of the earnest and re people who otherwise might be reasonable Trump defenders just don't want to think about. They want to tick off some list and say Trump's been decent on this or decent on that. Though the notion that Donald Trump's going to revitalize prayer in the, in the public schools, if one even thought that was a really important thing, or that he, frankly, that he's going to overturn Roe v. Wade, I believe, or that he's, what are the rest of the things that he's going to do? I mean, it's a little ridiculous. But I, I would say I have changed a little bit. And so it's fine if Mr. Marcus wants to regret having defended me. I wasn't fully aware that he had. And I'm not fully, I haven't read the article that, in which he now renounces his, his defense. But I mean, I have probably become less interested in conservatism and what a real conservatism is and was and what list of issues one has to tick off and more interested in the broader question of, as I say, liberal democracy, self-government, you know, keeping a free and uh, vigorous democracy alive in this world. And that was always, I thought, the conservatism I was part of 
was an attempt to try to do that. We might have been wrong about some, maybe liberals were more right than we acknowledge in certain aspects of how to do that. And conservatives had some blind spots, certainly. But conservatives also cared a lot and did a lot of good, I would say, in the defense of liberal democracy, in the defense of liberalism, broadly understood. Yeah. And if David Marcus and others aren't interested in that broader project, then I'm happy, I guess, to leave a kind of doctrinaire movement, Trumpy conservatism to them and say, fine, you guys go down that path. I'd prefer to be on the the path of defending liberal democracy. Yes, me too. I thought that this list, minority unemployment, uh, Roe versus Wade, prayer in school, was especially interesting because of mostly the triviality. I mean, you don't even hear Trump campaigning on moments of silence or prayer in schools. And the judiciary in Roe versus Wade, unless you think that there might be looser gun laws, the judiciary in Roe versus Wade are usually considered the same issue for conservatives. And as you say, it makes it seem like the conservative agenda is so thin that they've, whatever expression you want to use to own the libs, they've shot themselves in the head. I mean, really, unless you believe that there is an ongoing genocide of the unborn since 1973 or whatever, when Roe versus Wade passed, what could possibly electrify you so much about prayer in school that would lead you to overthrow the fundamental beliefs, not only of conservatives, but of America itself? Yeah, I mean, I, look, I actually do care about the judiciary. I wrote some of my PhD thesis on it and uh, on constitutionalism, and I am still pretty conservative on a lot of the you know, ways in which judges should interpret the Constitution and so forth. But the judiciary is a means or is a part of a broader system, which is our constitutional government. And the point of the kinds of judges, uh, and some of them I approve of that Trump has nominated, is to uphold the rule of law. If Trump's presidency as a whole undermines the rule of law, and I think that's a very easy case to make, and if it's bad for our constitutional form of government, the fact that he sort of has got conservative support by latching onto one little bit of it is, is just to utterly miss the forest for the trees, I think. I want you to speculate a little bit on whether you think you changed or the world did from Obama's second term to Trump's first term. I mean, I think clearly both. And, and of course, one, it'd be kind of crazy not to change a little bit if the world were changing a lot. There were things revealed about American conservatism that I knew about, obviously. I'd fought many of them, Pat Buchanan, Ron, uh, Ron Paul, all kinds of elements of American conservatism, but they were stronger than I expected. In any case, with Trump's nomination and election, they emerged and became dominant instead of, my friend Charlie Sykes says there were a lot of recessive genes in American conservatism that were you know, unpleasant and unfortunate, but they were mostly recessive. And so that's a big difference from when they become dominant. The world did change, though. I would not have predicted that America, not only that it would maybe find you fall once for a demagogue, one party falls for a demagogue, then the nation in a very kind of fluky election. The demagogue wins, you know, with an electoral college inside straight. But the degree to which one of our two major parties is now all in, in subservience to the demagogue, and doesn't just put up with his demagoguery, but uh, applauds it and imitates it, that is really bad. And that is really bad for the country. And it would be very bad if the other party went in that direction too. So that's why I do think we have kind of a crisis of our politics, not just a crisis of one party or, or one point of view. Yeah, I think David Frum has said that, you know, we all lose if the Republican Party falls apart. And I'm not entirely convinced that's true because I don't know what the parties are anymore. We have a socialist, Bloomberg, a former Republican who looks in many ways like a Republican running for the Democratic nomination. So I don't even know who's who anymore. But do you think there's some truth to that, that we all lose if we lose 
one of the two major parties. I think it, we lose if we lose two parties that whatever their problems, and God knows there are many and their limitations, that I think were basically healthy parts of a healthy system. I mean, they had all kinds of flaws. But, and I do think, you know, what, what was American exceptionalism, that term that got taken over really by conservatives, but it was actually a social science term from the early 20th century. And yeah. it really meant something. And what it meant to oversimplify some was we were, had sort of, maybe by luck, maybe because we had, because of geography, maybe because of sociology, maybe because of political culture, maybe because of our party system, many different social scientists had different explanations. We had avoided the plagues of Europe, to make it simple. We had mm -hmm. avoided communism, we had avoided fascism, mostly. We had individual and uh, communists and fascists and little flare-ups and demagogues, but they didn't run Amer the United States, and they never really ran each of the major parties. It's that was a very fortunate thing, and mm -hmm. I think we got very complacent about it. And now you look and you do think, you know, we're looking a lot more like Europe, certainly mm -hmm. on the conservative side, question mark on the Democratic side, but I don't think things are entirely healthy there. And Bloomberg, who I, you know, would be okay with in terms of policy on most issues, and who I respect as a serious person, is also something a little decadent about a system where a, you know, multi zillionaire comes in and spends 10 times more than anyone else to kind of let's see if he does, but try to win the nomination, uh, at least try to win the nomination, you know, from a lot of people who've been working very hard for a year. So the whole system has the feeling of sort of being rickety at best and, and really kind of in early stages of collapse. And again, there were, could a little bit of disruption of the system been a good thing? Absolutely. With the parties getting stale, uh, am I dogmatically attached to these two parties? No, I think I could have a different one, different third one or different ones or replacements. But the way in which it's happening is, I do think, pretty discouraging and worrisome. I want to talk to you about collapse, but first I want to see if how you feel about the Stephen Hassan and others' suggestion that Trumpism is a cult. He says, for instance, that with his experience with the Moonies, that most cults are either fascist or socialist in nature. Those those ideologies are just great recruiting tools for cognitively vulnerable people. And I wonder if the cult model works for you because there's some problems with it, but it also seems useful. I mean, I think it illuminates some aspects of Trumpism, particularly that kind of the real attachment to him personally, which I think goes beyond even the attachment to charismatic leaders like Barack Obama or Ronald Reagan on both on the left and the right, respectively. So I, I, I you know, we have published pieces of the bulwark and, also, and I've read pieces that I like that talk about some of the cult aspects. I don't fully, though, embrace it. I think it, it a, it seems to deprive people of agency in a certain way. They kind of got brainwashed and they're sucked into it. And B, it might capture some of the adulatory people out there who travel a thousand miles to be at a Trump rally. But for me, the real, there was always some of that in a mass democracy or in any nation, obviously, in a small democracy, in an ancient nation, right? People, you know, excessively fall in love with leaders. People want things to believe in. They can believe in false gods of different kinds. They can believe in false leaders of different kinds. For me, it's the elite collapse, the elite capitulation on the right to Trump that is most appalling, mm -hmm. I'd say most surprising really to me, and most, and maybe most dangerous, I don't know, most as dangerous. So everyone focuses on the base, on the cult, on the rallies. Hmm. You could have a lot of that, but if you had conservative elites saying, wait a second, this is too far, there'd be f fights, but there would be, a, it would be more like Joe McCarthy. It would be a, some capitulation, 
The guy would cause a lot of trouble for two, three, four years. Uh, there'd be a lot of cowardice and standing up to him. But ultimately, the system, if I can put it this way, and in the case of McCarthy, an actual Republican president, Eisenhower and some Republican senators finally said, this is, we can, this is enough, you know? And he yeah. ends up going away and not doing, I think it's fair to say, you know, permanent damage. He damaged individuals, but to, to not permanent damage to our democracy. If anything, there's a reaction against McCarthyism, right? The yeah. thing with Trump is the rationalization of Trump, the acceptance, which has now morphed into more than accept, first reluctant acceptance by conservative elites, by Republican office holders, by donors, morphed into less reluctant acceptance, and now into kind of eager, hey, he's found the magic sauce. He knows how to win. He knows how to stick it to the liberals. And hmm. last night I was at a dinner, very nice man, a thoughtful guy, he's done extremely well in America, uh, really a genuine, impressive person, I'm sure a very decent person in his public, in his personal and communal kind of civic life, you know? Mm -hmm. And he, he just, is, I saw this sort of happen in our argument, our conversation, where it, what started off is, okay, look, I understand, Bill, why you don't like him much, but you've got to admit good judges and stuff. Okay, fine. But then it became, you know, and incidentally, some of the stuff you don't like, maybe I don't didn't like it at first, but you need to do that to take on the left. And because and I said, well, really, what's the left going to do if you don't do that? And, and then they, it becomes tr pure tribalism. And I, I don't know if cult's quite the right word, but it does become a kind of... Uh, the lines collapse, the the guardrails start to collapse one by one. And again, American conservatism have been distinct from European conservatism because, again, whatever its flaws and blind spots, you know, Bill Buckley did say to the John Birch Society, no, that's that's too that's too far in conspiracy mahuggery. Mm -hmm. Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan started off accommodating some Southern segregationists, but by the end of his eight years, he had pretty clearly repudiated them, I would say, and, you know, joined the mainstream, if I can put it that way, on, on a lot of civil rights issues, not all, but on, on many. Uh, Bob Dole stood up in 1996 and told the Pat Buchanan supporters, if you are intolerant, leave this party. And he did, in fact, leave the party three years later. So I think there were always attempts to sort of draw some lines and, and keep it as a, a civil and civilized movement. There have been equivalent things on the left with, you know, liberal anti-communists saying, no, no, you can't just apologize for Stalin's crimes and so forth. And now you do have on the right, the elite capitulation, I think, is underappreciated, really, and its importance is underappreciated. You can make fun of the people at the rallies. One can do that all one wants. But it's one way to put it is this. I don't know what you'd think. I mean, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, in some respects, has done as much damage as Fox News. Fox News riles up the base, and it's there's an echo chamber effect, and it it's, does a lot of damage, don't get me wrong. But it's the fancy rationalizations that allow the wealthy businessmen and others who don't follow politics that closely to kind of relax and say, you know what, I think that Trump, he's got some things wrong, but some things he's got right. And, you know, what about there really were problems with Ukraine and, and you know, messing in our election? And there really were. Uh, Michael Flynn was treated unjustly. And the journal editorial page in that respect and others like it, I'm just using them as an illustration, I think have done, as I say, the, the elite capitulation or the elite rationalization has almost done as much as the mass adulation and the cult side doesn't quite capture the, the cult term or metaphor. It doesn't quite capture the elite rationalization and accommodation, which I think is so important. When I was 16, I went to stay with a family in France, and they did not have, they refused to celebrate some kind of Charles de Gaulle day. They define themselves as bourgeois, you know, that, that mm -hmm. when bourgeois is kind of elite, right? Mm -hmm. And they had pictures of Pétain there on their wall. And I asked them why they weren't going to the de Gaulle festival. And they said, because when the Nazis occupied France, they remembered them as being so polite. 
And I mean, that it was, I had to like, police, they said, and I thought that meant police or something. I went quickly, looked it up, and it, they they meant polite. And there seems to be a little of that, although Trump is certainly not polite, but a little just accommodationism. And, you know, I mean, if if I can go this far, like a little ordinary German thing that we were warned about. I, look, I think that's right. And I mean, I, I don't, on the other hand, want, you know, everyone who's ever, I don't denounce everyone who's worked on the Trump administration. I think some people went in there with genuinely public spirited voters. And some people probably did some good and stopped a lot of bad things from happening. There's still people in there, I, I think maybe there for that reason. And again, so there's a big spectrum, what one has to say. But no, I do agree that, and, and I don't want people you know, who served in the administration to be, I don't know, harassed in their private lives or shattered at, particularly in restaurants and so forth. Having said that, in a way, people are a little too polite. I, you know, the, the people who are, uh, I was thinking about this, the board of directors of Fox News Corporation is a public corporation. It has a board of directors. You can look up who, who's on it in the website. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they all go to the fancy the country clubs and the cocktail parties and dinners in New York, including with liberals, incidentally, and people on the left. And and it's all very much, it would be kind of improper to say, incidentally, you're on the board of a corporation that genuinely is doing damage to this country. It's hmm. genuinely inciting uh, hatred and prejudice and, and intolerance. I mean, don't you, are you doing something about that? Do you raise that at the board meetings? I, I bet that does not happen. Paul Ryan, to take the former Speaker of the House, who's on the board of Fox. I bet that does not happen when Paul Ryan goes even to a dinner party, not to obsess with dinner parties here, but I mean, to a dinner party or a gathering, even predominantly of liberals. And I myself, I've got to say, I can see that. I don't really wouldn't want to be the, the you know, the skunk at the garden party who sort of, you know, put, you know, ruins the whole conversation by saying that. On the other hand, you do think at some point, don't people have to, be held accountable here? And, and shouldn't people step up a little more? And while I'm on this rant, what about all the people who are just c- keeping quiet? I mean, does Condi Rice not have something to say about alliance structures and our w- role in, in terms of human rights around the world? Does mm-hmm. the former uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs have nothing to say when we start pardoning war criminals? I've t- some people have said some things. Uh, some people have been much more outspoken. I've been involved in a group, Republicans for the Rule of Law, that's uh, found, some re- not found, helped f- former Republican uh, Justice Department officials and others speak up in this. But the, the number of people who quietly will say, oh my God, can you believe what's happening there? Here's a story I heard the other day. And then publicly, you can look awfully hard to find them quoted anywhere or saying anything that might help educate their fellow citizens as to what the genuine threat really is of this administration. The last I read from Henry Kissinger, and I might have missed something, is him is when he said he thought Jared Kushner was going to do a like bang up job in foreign policy. We haven't heard from Donald Rumsfeld, to my knowledge. I mean, it is like what are they? Or John Kelly gave one speech, and that was nice. He said a couple of yes. things, but but again, Jim Mattis, John Kelly, people who've been in there, you hear the stories that in private they say A, B, or C, but. I mean, we have an election. Uh, I tried to very hard to fail totally to recruit a credible Republican challenger to, mm-hmm. to Trump. And so I talked to a lot of some of these people, and would you speak up? And, uh, you know, many of these people are Republicans, obviously. And so I'm not asking you to support Bernie Sanders. I'm not even asking you to support, you know, a moderate Democrat. But would you say a nice word about a Republican who challenged Trump? Or even just say, I'm not going to get into endorsing, but I do have real questions about Donald Trump having a second term based on what I've 
what I've seen. That was what mm -hmm. I asked people to say. Not not even to reveal private conversations, not to write some kind of tell-all. Just say, look, I was there. I served for X amount of months or years. And people need to sort of stop and think hard because they, I have real problems or questions or there are real legitimate concerns. How many people How many people have even said that? That For me, that's I just don't even quite understand it, honestly, is that, that it's not a betrayal of trust or confidence. It's an honest statement about what you've seen. But how little of that is that? And John Bolton, in a way, became the almost farcical face of this avoidance of responsibility yes. by yes. seeming to prefer, you know, selling his book to testifying before Congress. I mean, it seems as though it might be as simple as that. And since we've, you know, begun with, well, what does Bill Crystal think about prayer in schools now? <laughs> that the just slim pretexts for holding on to or not breaking ranks with the Trumpites are just, they're just appalling in how slight they are or just how greedy they are. So, you know, just people you wouldn't expect it from, yeah, as you say, aligning with Fox News, not wanting to rock the boat with Rupert Murdoch or not even wanting to seem political. And so joining the fire against the fire brigade, it is just astounding to see. Well, or staying on the sidelines, I'd say, when there's a fire going on. Now, I suppose they would say, don't you think that, well, it's not really a fire, you know, it's kind of a problem, there's some problem. Problems, but it's not, you're exaggerating. We mm -hmm. too are exaggerating how bad things are. And I guess and that is an empirical, I mean, an analytical question. I suppose it's possible, but I don't know. I've talked to an awful lot of people who've, who are pretty close to the situation. I think I'm reasonably close, but people who've been in. And I mean, the notion that uh, things aren't getting worse, that he wouldn't be much worse if he were reelected, that, you know, all the things he's testing now, I'm law enforcement, uh, law enforcer in chief, I'm commander in chief, I can just individually go after individual members of the military, I can intervene in particular cases, stuff that's sort of happening once or twice now, you know what I mean, and sort of seems a little woo. Yeah. That's going to happen routinely if he's reelected. And I'm not sure that, and the Republicans on the Hill aren't going to stand up to it. And I mean, that, then you really are on a road to a different kind of government, honestly, and that's very dangerous. Mickey Kaus, the sort of anti-immigration pundit, right. one-time candidate for Senate in California and former Slate writer, was a friend of mine. And he's the person that I most have seen switch to full-on well, I guess full on Trumpism, or at least he's the critic. He's a critic like Ann Coulter of Trump not being Trumpy enough. But what he said the summer of 2016, he said it's tough for conservatives because there's just this really small aperture, really small. What am I thinking of? Something in plumbing that you, you kind of can't get in to Fox News unless you say specific things. And because that's such an incentive in sort of keeping your brand alive, and I think this is true also for office holders, that you end up conforming to that ideology whether you want to or not. And that is the way, uh, just to your point about Paul Ryan, that is the way that the Fox News watching crowd, the ones I think of as cognitively vulnerable, are not that different from the Fox News either courting or at least placating or contributing to a crowd that are really bending themselves, contorting themselves to please Fox News almost without knowing it. No, I think that's right. I, I mean, one way to think, I, I agree. I've underestimated, I would put it this way, uh, same point really, the incentive structure that the reward structure of becoming a Trumpist or being a Trumpist. Mm. I, and I think a lot of us have, including never Trump, more you know, conservative types like me and a lot of liberals. I, how many times have people said, yeah, boy, that, doesn't he understand what this is going to do to his future career? I mean, he, why is he signing on here? Trump ruins everything he touches, blah, blah, blah. Which I sort of agree with, actually, at some level. On the other hand, in the real world, 
people who've signed on are doing well. They're doing well. They're getting good book contracts. They're getting giving speeches. They're on Fox News. Uh, they're not even shunned that much, as I was saying earlier, by by sort of the liberal establishment in some ways. But you have to have a Trump's president. I mean, people are. It's not a stupid point. So you can't just not have a Trump supporter at your uh, conference or whatever. So you have you know Steve Bannon speak at a respectable think tank or at a major mm -hmm. business association, and there's speaker fees and so forth. So, I mean, the degree, I underestimated the extent to which a Trump world would have a an incentive structure that would reward people who either came along or, or, or were there from the first, or I guess true believers as well as as opportunists. And conversely, the, the there's not much disincentive for being a true, a true believer. You watch some of the real people I would consider just both either crazy or really shameless, really shameless, the Matt Gateses of the world, some of the worst mm -hmm. Republican congressmen, some of the worst uh, conservative types on, you know, who uh, uh, either on the air or, you know, on, on writing stuff and so forth, the people who attack Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and stuff. What price are they really paying? You know, we yeah. don't approve of them. So I think that is a real problem. And I think I, we, I underestimated, and maybe others did too, the kind of the size and the resources behind Trump world. And look, the president is the president. That's the other thing. I did work in the White House and I have some feel for this. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of resources that just come from being the president. And especially a president who has some, you know, chance, not a huge chance, well, 50, 50, 40, 60 chance of being reelected. Uh, and a president who's willing to really in a pretty ruthless way, use the power of the presidency too against people in a way that no president has done in recent times before. I mean, they've done individual cases. LBJ went after, but I mean, nothing like Nixon, but nothing like the way Trump does. So you put all that together and um, it does take a little more uh, gumption, I suppose, to uh, to resist the pull or to uh, actually stand up and speak. And it's very easy if you're a decent person who doesn't want to be part of it. I mean, to just keep quiet. I think that is the other thing. Uh, th that's a pretty big slice of a certain type of conservative intellectual and, and, and Republican establishment figure. I noticed that the Southern Baptist Convention are, to the extent that they object to Trump and Pence, it's on the, on the grounds in a way that they object to politics at all. Right. I even saw that a conservative in Indiana is, is running for governor against politics. So get politics out of our lives. Well, it's, yeah, I hear that a fair amount. And I, one does hear that a fair amount, I think, from uh, sort of religious conservatives. Well, politics is always dirty and messy. Mm. And Trump is a little more vulgar than the average one. But someone said this to me in a recent argument I was having with a sort of Trump accommodating business type. But Clinton was kind of more vulgar than George H.W. Bush. And he was. And I actually didn't like it. And we argued a little bit about that back in 1992, remember? Um, yeah. But But I mean, it's not comparable, of course, to the levels of not just vulgarity, but really the demeaning of the discourse that Trump is taking us. But people do find ways to, yeah, you're right. You could, if you, if you want to be sort of distant, from, if you want to just blame it on politics. And I think there are a lot of, and actually blame it on a lot of, it's technology, it's social media, it's all these things. Mm -hmm. And I think they all play a role, obviously, but none of them requires that people quite go in the direction they've gone. So that brings us to Barr. So if the Federalist is in it for prayer and schools, that Bill Barr, his one objection to Trump that he's very stagily produced for the media now is that Trump tweets too much. This is something that you're kind of, it's you're allowed to offer right. that much criticism, right? right? And that Trump tweets in a way that makes, you know, he doesn't want to be bullied. He's Bill Barr. And I wonder, you know, you said that in some ways, 
Trump has appointed some good judges, but I mean, he's been hell on the judiciary in other ways, chiefly by his appointment of Barr, who's quite destructive to all the branches. But, you know, what do you think motivates someone like Barr? You know, he's probably the closest to you in the sense that he had a worked out ideology and he's styled himself as a thinker. You don't just style yourself as a thinker, but let's just we're talking about Barr now. And he has now brought this unitary executive theory. And incidentally, I was happy to see Ayers pull that apart as the sophistry it is. But Barr is quite confident that he has this ideology of that parliamentary systems and the legislature are actually the threat to the government. What does he get out of it? That is a good question. Well, he gets out of it as he gets to be attorney general of the United States again. Right, been, again. But having been it only for about a year, and I mean, I've been in not quite in that office, but in pretty high office. I knew Bill back in the first Bush administration. And, you know, you have a little itch to go back and do it again. It's a, it's it's fun having those jobs. And you think you can do some good for the country. And then it turns out there's some not so nice things that come along with serving this administration. But then it turns out, especially if your view of doing good for the country is just liberating the country from an unbelievably threatening left-wing ideology that's sort of despotic and genuinely threatening everything you like about America, if that's your sort of self-understanding of where you are, you end up talking yourself into a lot of things and and tolerating a lot of things. I, I mean, look, whatever the particular merits of individual judges, I totally agree that the, the damage that was done to the Constitution mm. by the defenses Republicans offered of Trump on impeachment as opposed to what would have been maybe a plausible defense of, look, what he did was wrong and it can't really be tolerated, but it was one-off and it didn't end up changing our policy and let's just rebuke him and let the voters decide in eight, nine months. That was the one sort of semi-sensible way you could get out of voting for conviction, in my view. They didn't make that argument. I mean, one or two did, but the huge majority of Republicans and also of conservative apologists were way beyond that into as you say, unitary executive land. But beyond that, I mean, there's a sort of semi-serious debate in administrative law about what about independent agencies and what about can Congress stop you from firing certain people? That's kind of, you know, that's like a reasonable, interesting constitutional issue that respectable people have different on. It's not even entirely ideologically predictable who would be on which side of that, you know. Uh, Liberal presidents have wanted to exercise more control over administrative agencies as well. And Chevron, the famous decision, has sort of had left and right wing critics. Anyway, but that's one level of discussion, which is reasonable. We're so far beyond that with Trump. And the idea that Bill Barr thinks it is, I can't even think of a good analogy here, but I mean, it is reasonable to morph from what was a sort of reasonable academic discussion to a kind of justification of lawless, genuinely lawless behavior, where the whole federal, the instrumentalities of the federal government are marshaled on behalf of someone's private, either political interests or financial interests or family interests with no, with all lines and guardrails obliterated. The Mm -hmm. idea that you just cheerfully sail into that port from the earlier one you were in, where you were in somewhat sophisticated conversations about the right way to structure administrative agencies and judicial review and so forth. It's pretty amazing, I got to say. As for a late life convergence like Bill Barr's and your own, I can't help but think, and I'm sure I'm not the first, to think about your father, the great Irvin Crystal, who underwent 
his own kind of conversion and is famous for so much. But one of his most illustrious quotations is a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. You know, sometimes I remember that as just a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged. Right. <laughs> but by reality, I wonder if you could on the spot rework that for your own transformation. Yeah, several people have obviously uh, brought this up. Made the analogy. No, I think it's some truth to that. That I mean, given what conservatism has become, when I suppose if my father had bothered to qualify that one line quip, it would have been given what liberalism had become. He thought by the mid seventies, as opposed to the liberalism he was much more part of in the fifties and sixties. But anyway, given what conser- Trumpy conservatism has become, yeah, maybe I'm a conservative who's been who's been mugged by uh, the reality of Trump and. I've always thought a lot of conservatism was defending liberalism, defending liberalism properly understood, defending liberal democracy. But I think the urgency of that is more evident to me. The 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 case that liberals have had for some of their particular versions of that is more, it seems stronger to me than it once did. So yeah, maybe I'm sort of retracing the steps a little bit uh, in in sort of the, op- not really the opposite direction, I think in, in a different direction at different times. The other thing, I was talking to someone about this the other day, I mean, I'm interested personally, of course, in the 70s and the 80s and earlier times and all these fights and the stuff I've studied and, you know, taught about it, taught a little bit and stuff. But it probably is a sufficiently new era that we all might just, in a way, one also probably should just step back and say, okay, it's 2020. You know, how does liberal democracy flourish in the 21st century? What are the new threats? What are the new patterns that we see, sociological, economic, technological? And how do we try to strengthen, you know, a polity that preserves freedom and tolerance and is strong externally and so forth. I mean, it's not so obvious that the 21st century is going to be so friendly to all those things. And so I'm sort of for fresh thinking on all sides at this point. And though the analogies are interesting with the past, I don't, you know, in a way one can overdo that probably. The one way it does seem to be one sort of element of it, of the New York schools, the New York intellectuals transformation that's consistent, I think, with yours and David Frum's is a a relationship to the landmass we now call Russia. So, you know, when you talk about the 70s and 80s, conservatives were really focused on the absolute failure, worse than failure of Stalinism, and that they, some of them had the New York, the City College crowd had thrown in with a hopeful vision of what the Soviet Union might accomplish. And of course, an element of gratitude for their help fighting fascism. But watching those minds change there's a great movie, I, I know you've seen it, about your father and his cohort. I'm forgetting the name right now. but uh, uh, What's it? Arguing the World, I think. Arguing the By World, Joe yes. Joe Jordan, I think, yeah. Yes, it's so good. And you, you just seeing minds change in real time, or at least having them narrated, the change of mind narrated so vividly by these guys. But, you know, the weirdest thing that I think would have surprised everyone in your father's group is that the allegiance to a former KGB leader of the same in the Kremlin has become a Republican position. Helsinki is what did it for a lot of conservatives who were even trying to stick with Trump. And then they see him stand up with an avatar of what's worst in Kremlin thinking, whether it's uh, in Soviet times or now. It's uncanny. It's like a it's like a kind of taboo. And I feel like I feel like you maybe like your father did sort of follow an objection to that kind of Russian totalitarianism, move toward totalitarianism, where it went. You know, so that's one of the things that is consistent about your position all along. 
I think so. And I would say not just Russian, maybe uh, authoritarianism or totalitarianism, because I remember when Trump sort of embraced America first as a slogan. I mean, he presumably didn't know the history much, though he might have a little from his own father, who I think was sympathetic to that. But I remember saying, well, I mean, he can use that term, but I'm surely all of his respectable supporters are going to say that term is really a disgraceful term in American history, because it's not just a kind of, you know, foolish, some of the people there were kind of just foolish, wishful isolationists who hoped the world would go away if we just stayed away from it. But a lot of them were Hitler apologists or certainly mild, like your family in France or the Pétain, you know. Uh, yeah. um, there was certainly a thought that uh, th there was no reason for us to get involved and no moral obligation at all. And, and probably, frankly, they, Hitler could do some good on the on the European continent and so forth. So I remember when he when, when he used the phrase, I sort of said that. I mean, just this is kind of unbelievable that this phrase has come back and it's come back. He uses it. I think his reelection committee maybe is called the America or some committee the PAC that's for him is called the America First Committee. Various decent people have tried to sort of redefine it in a way. If you look at some of the Defense Depart Department and NSC documents in the Trump administration, as well, America first really means, and then it sort of means like a vague version of you know NATO and American American leadership, watching out for ourselves a little more though, making the Europeans pay a little more. But ultimately, it it is really the opposite of what every of what American conservatism post-World War II, hmm. mostly it stood for. Now, there were these isolationist elements, but they lost out in the late 40s and 50s. Uh, the, um, Trump's sort of a weird combination of isolationism and sounding belligerent and so forth. But I think you're right. I mean, for, for me, as a, someone who really came to Washington in, in 85 to work in the Reagan administration, yeah. and though I worked in domestic policies, it happens under Reagan, it was, of course, the real pull of that, as you suggested just now, uh, for people like me at least, was the foreign policy side. And it was the uh, standing up to dictatorship and helping people around the world who were fighting dictatorships. And we, you know, what, whatever the details and how to do that is a different question. And if Trump's beyond, I'd say, moral neutrality about authoritarians and dictators, his actual preference for authoritarianism and his admiration for dictators is so repulsive. It's really so far beyond Jimmy Carter's you know, occasional slipping in that direction. It's beyond Nixon, who had a tendency in that direction, but again, had at least a, some kind of realpolitik justification for it, given the the moment he was in. You know, um, it's 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 beyond things people like me didn't like so much about even the Bush administration or President Obama choosing not to intervene in Syria and stuff. But at least there, those are tough choices, and one can see the rationale. Trump just flat out likes dictators, and he's got a U.S. foreign policy going that. Though the system still resists that a little bit, I would say, to its credit, that is more moving in that direction. And again, the damage that a second term of Trump does to us at home, but also I'd say to us having any claim to be kind of a leader of the forces of liberty in the world, to yeah. use an unfashionable, I'm sure, expression. I mean, that damage is really great. I think one of the first episodes I hosted of Trumpcast, I had a guest on who teaches at the law school at UCLA, and she said the Pax Americana seems endangered right now, right after, pretty soon after the election. And I now think that nobody uses that phrase, so endangered right. that nobody uses that phrase anymore. I mean, we're so strong, I would say, that it's, you know, it's been a very slow motion decay of it, and in a yeah. funny way, people can then tell themselves still you know, I don't think things, NATO still exists. The U.S.-Japan yes. alliance still exists. Not that many countries have fallen to authoritarianism right. exactly. But I think that's very precarious. And and again, you can maybe survive four years of this, but but this is again why I'm so obsessed with the re-election. I mean, eight years of this really, really is a whole new, different ballgame. 
Okay, I have to ask you about this. You are something of, or at least in touch with area experts on Ukraine and Russia, and can speak to the, the part of the impeachment that was decidedly not partisan, was concern for Ukraine as the last bulwark against Putin's imperialist ambitions. Right. This is a real issue. I would even venture to say bigger than prayer in schools. Right. As much of an emergency as that is. And when when we talk about whether the world's on fire or not, or whether that's exaggerating, and it's true that the body count has been lower under this president, I think, than under Obama, because he's been so roughly isolationist. The danger, the on-the-ground danger, seems to be in this depriving Ukraine, showing no support for Europe or very little support or even animosity toward Europe, and at the same time, depriving Ukraine of the support we promised them. And that Congress, everyone up to Mitch McConnell believes that they deserve for strategic reasons, not out of the goodness of our hearts, but because we need to contain Putin's clear ambitions. And we need to send a message that authoritarians invading neighboring countries aren't going to get away with it and aren't going to benefit from it. And we certainly haven't sent that message. I agree. And I think in that respect, the upshot of impeachment, maybe the world will see what Trump got in trouble for trying to do that, but they'll also see that in the end, he didn't pay you know, that much of a price, perhaps. Um, and I think I was talking to someone actually just uh, just randomly yesterday, I ran into who has been in Ukraine. I've never been, so I'm no expert at all, but uh, was there recently. And he said the demoralization of the people who are working oh. against, think of the corruption issue, which of course right. Trump has made a farce yes. about. There actually are really sincere people, decent people and admirable people working against corruption in Ukraine. They were very sincere and admirable people and still are working against authoritarianism and dictatorship and corruption in Russia. Many of them have been killed, unfortunately, by Putin. What do they think now? Do they feel any confidence that America has is, is going to help them in any way? And if we're not going to help them, how much is really most of Western Europe going to help them? And then they're alone. And then who could blame them, frankly, for even just going silent? I mean, it's awfully courageous to stand up even when we're helping them from 3,000 miles away, four, 5,000 miles away. And they have someone like Yavanovich there, uh, you know, right. strengthening their and making it very clear. And we learned from all, you know, everyone in, in the Foreign Service who testified before Congress that they were really shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainians on the corruption issue and on the fighting war with the Russians. And just to see the president bigfoot in and undo all that without, by the way, without a word of ar architecting a new foreign policy. I mean, since Jim Mattis left, I don't know what except the rapture Pompeo is even interested in. I mean, you could make the case, let Ukraine fall, you know, let the Soviet Union rebuild itself. Any of those things. I just want to hear them say it. You know, I just want to hear that's what they're doing. They don't quite have the nerve to say it, or maybe they haven't even thought it through. I mean, look, I watching the testimony of Fiona Hill and Yovanovitch and Taylor and others. Actually, it's funny for me, maybe think, you know what? I mean, American elites get criticized a lot and somewhat sometimes, obviously, deservedly so. American foreign policy elites have made plenty of mistakes and, and, and get criticized and deservedly so. But you watch those people and you th I thought... You know, this is pretty impressive. And we're a country that famously is thousands of miles away and doesn't care about foreign policy. But we've got a system that produced these people that they rose to the high levels of the Foreign Service or the Diplomatic Corps or just civil service or the military in the case of someone like Vindman and others. 
And, you know, they were representing our country well. They were doing their best to help friends and Democrats and freedom fighters over there. They were serious, sober people. You know, it makes you think, okay, we're not like the whole country isn't bereft of people who could help shape and manage a reasonable foreign policy, but then totally undercut, as you say, by the president. Okay, so speaking of, there's possibly some remaining pro-Trump people who are making some decision about judges and Roe versus Wade and maybe prayer in schools or taxes that keep them in the game with him. They're making some kind of Faustian bargain for their pet issue. There's certainly people who've been incentivized that when you talked about, you get those those sweet speakers fees. And for listeners who think that that's $10,000, it's not. It can be $300,000, you know, for an hour. And that's no joke. Or you get to consult with a foreign country like Giuliani and adventure around the world and see yourself as a mocker. Those are real incentives. But I think the stick used here should also not be underestimated, which is the tweets and the harassment. Now, when I first heard that politicians breaking with Trump or office holders who have decided not to run again really fear going back to their hometowns and getting harassed, right? Not just, you know, not getting a great follow-up job on the speaker circuit, but getting harassed. I was actually surprised at that because, and I'm guessing you feel the same way, Those of us who've been journalists for a long time have been enduring charges that we are ugly and stupid for 30 years. And in the comments sections and then later on Twitter, I I know you've, you know, you probably pay no attention to it. It rolls off you now, but right and left alike, people will almost certainly say something that I shouldn't have had you on the show. And that means I'm an idiot and you're an idiot and we're monsters and we're corporate shells. But so I thought, well, you know, a tough guy like Jim Comey, who, you know, ran a police force or someone like Robert Mueller, who was a Marine, is not going to be afraid of, you know, of getting even death threats or, you know, weird stuff in your DMs or even the president tweeting about you. But it is extraordinarily destabilizing for people not familiar with that. I think of Marie Yavanovich just describing what it's like to be tweeted at by the president of the United States and threatened on Twitter. And there's also a place in Michael Wolff's book that says, and I have no confirmation for this, but that Robert Mueller really was afraid of that. He just didn't want to be a public person in the kind of blood sport of Twitter. And the idea terrified him, probably like I would feel about going to actual war. And that seems to ha- that that all has smart people who should know better, people of great dignity and accomplishment, forfeiting their values for fear of getting called ugly or a fool on Twitter. Yeah, I don't know about the Mueller situation. I'm just a little doubtful about Mueller. But I, I agree generally that uh, I also had underestimated the power of this kind of intimidation. It's a big spectrum. It ranges from genuine intimidation of people who incidentally, it's very hard for them to stand up for themselves if you're an active duty military officer, you really can't say anything, just to take one example. Or if you're just a lone individual somewhere, obviously the whole weight of the president and his rabid supporters comes down on you. And that's not just unpleasant, but genuinely threatening to you. There's also the kind of social pressure. And I guess I I come back to the elites a little bit, the people who would never, you know, threaten someone. They're they're, they're polite people, to come back to your phrase. Um, But, you know, the amount of pressure, the, the Trump... There hasn't been a backlash against Trump's bullying. The more decent people just engage in less 
overt and less dramatic bullying. But the amount of bullying that is now going on among conservatives, and again, I, not just the most kind of, you know, threatening kind of bullying, but social pressure. Uh, and, and someone told me, a senator who was no longer, who's no longer, who's left the Senate. I said to him, he was out of office. I said, yeah, could you speak up a little more maybe? But he's not a fan of Trump. He's spoken up a couple of times. So why don't you speak up more? I think it might be helpful. I mean, it's, it wasn't harassing him, but I happened to see him somewhere. And he said, you know, I just, what is good does it do? And frankly, you know, my wife and I, we go to the country club near where we live. And that's often where we go for dinner, you know, and a lot of friends there. And they all get mad at us and it's not very pleasant. And now, that's a silly little thing, and it's kind of ridiculous that people are moved by that. But, of course, in the real world, people are affected by their peers and by social mm -hmm, pressure. So, mm -hmm. so I think it is a real spectrum. It's a real continuum, I guess, from you know, mild social pressure to real threats and, you know, death threats and so forth, and loss of one's job and closing of magazines and so forth. And so yeah. it's really, um, it is bad. There's always been some of that, obviously, in life in general and in politics and in America. And we all know of cases like that. But it's usually been somewhat on the margins, somewhat repudiated when discovered. You know, a lot of it was sort of behind the scenes. And then if it came out, oh, that's inappropriate, you know, yeah. or repudiated after the fact. McCarthyism would be an example of that. Yeah. And with Trump, it's sort of, it's not just tolerated, but now kind of imitated and embraced hmm. by an ex astonishing uh, percentage of his supporters. Oof. So to me, living like that and living like that French family I live with who are very dour by the time I met them, it doesn't look good. I mean, maybe I sound like a, a just a moralist here, but well, let's say I think of this. I don't know if you remember this old joke about a guy who drives up in a convertible high on drugs with lots of girls and rock music playing at a rehab center. And as he's checking in, the doctor says, you know, you don't have to live this way anymore. Right. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like that's what I'm saying to conservative zealots like Lindsey Graham, you know, where he thinks like, or I'm saying that meaning on Twitter. So I'm not saying it to their faces, but you don't have to live this way anymore. And he says, what are you talking about? This is winning. Yeah. This is, is winning. Right. The, the winning side of it can't be underestimated. I mean, for conservatives who've talked themselves into the belief, it's not entirely true, of course, that they were losing for 20 years or 40 years or 60 right. years. He won. Someone said that to me just the other day. McCain lost and Romney lost and they were polite and Trump won. And that's so important. And But people love, look. It's psychology, right? There are all these psychological tests, you know. People like being on the Victoria side. They like having positive reinforcement. They like mm -hmm. winning. It has a certain self, you know, this is a little, not to go back to the 30s and the Germans and all, but it has a certain kind of momentum, right? Yeah. This is why things are worrisome, and I'm afraid things might get worse before they get better. I almost want to end like that, except I think you and many of the never-Trumpers are actually, because you'd think we would sound most defeatist right now, right? And we would be the laughing the least if they're the ones winning. But in fact, I hear almost exhilaration from you and David Frum and others in the never-Trump boat that there's a kind of renewed commitment to your fundamental values that it's extraordinary. And when I hear someone like Mitt Romney or Sheldon Whitehouse speak out against this administration, there's just a new clarity. I was thinking even to speech writers, mm -hmm. the truth sounds better, more elegant, more melodious, more persuasive than the lies. That's what I thought when Mitt Romney stood up. And that's what I see in your work now. It's nice to be uncompromised. Well, it's nice of you to say, and that's a nice formulation about the truth being more melodious than lies. And I think that's true, ultimately. And no, I there's a certain liberation that I think 
people like me feel. And and, and it's once you decide you're not going to be part of the winning team in the short term <laughs> run, I mean, you may not even be very that comfortable with the other team. There's a kind of now, you know, there's a kind of liberation, which means one can personally feel quite you know, uh, satisfied and, and, and you're not morose all the time. I am worried about the country, though, and I, I do think that's, you know, I mean, that, that remains, it'd just be terrible if we go down having, we have all these opportunities and, and with no good reason to go down the path we're going for various reasons, for various, uh, because of various accidents and various weaknesses, it turns out, and various failures of the public and of the elites and some bad luck and, and uh, some bad ideas. We're going down a path we don't need to go down. But if we go down it, it's really a disservice to the country and, and I would say to the world. Bill Crystal is uh, Bill Crystal. Thank you so much for being here, Bill. Uh, I enjoyed it, Virginia. So that's it for today's show. Please give us a holler on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. First time I've ever used the expression holler. And are you a Slate Plus member yet? You got to join up. You get all the episodes ad-free, plus secret discounts and invitations. $35 for the first year. You just got to join Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I think it's absolutely illegal to use your own 